committee, I welcome you with open arms. Is that so? How late do you stay open? You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. I hope they are watching. They'll see. They'll see and they'll know. And they'll say, why she wouldn't even harm a fly. What's up, everybody? You're listening to NoCo Cinema here on WGM+. Plus. We are your guide to cinema here in the city of Chicago. I am Tom Hush. And I am Connor Cornelius. And we are coming off a fantastic night at the Gene Siskel Film Center. We're still buzzing, and it's not because we had a couple of shots of Tullamore Dew. Uh, what a wonderful night that Don't was. tell anybody. Uh, uh, it was so much fun. Sold-out screening of Rendezvous in Chicago. Uh, congrats to Michael Glover Smith, the yep. writer and director. Congrats to Lane Marie Williams. And Women of the Now. And Women of the Now. The everybody team. involved. Yep. Um, so great to see everybody from that fantastic film. Uh, we were really uh, honored to be asked to do that. And uh, for a sold out screening, it was it was really magical. It was humbling. Yeah, I think the for, li- for both of us. And the film took on a totally new life. Absolutely. Um, it was it's, people were laughing and having a good time and really enjoying the film. Afterwards, uh, Michael Glover Smith told us he's like, "This is the best screening that we've he ever had. had." Yeah, I was really really happy for him. So shout out to the folks over at Rendezvous in Chicago. Thank you again for that. Um, it's been a little while since we've uh, don't do it. Don't do it. The news? No, don't do the bare naked ladies thing. Whatever you do. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a don't! while. Uh, All right. It's been a little while since we've done some news talk. Um, but I think there's quite a few stories this week uh, that we want to talk about. Uh, a little bit later in the program, we're going to be talking to Alexandra Hawken from the America's Media Initiative. She's the founding director of the America's Media Initiative, and she's going to be talking a little bit about Cuban Visions, a fantastic screening series going on all year uh, that focuses on Cuban filmmakers and takes on a number of different conversations and topics uh, and is presented with full spectrum features it's uh presented also in conjunction with the athenaeum theater beautiful yep. theater here in the city of chicago so you'll hear a little bit more about her later but right now let's do some news um i'm gonna start off with a story that i clipped from the sun times and yes literally clipped I've i got know the wow, piece of we've newspaper. got we have physical media i know what an idiot yeah uh, <laughs> shout out to uh shout out to, to Nita, Rida, yeah, yeah Nita Nita Gannett. Gannett. <laughs> who the fuck uses physical media anymore that <laughs> <laughs> that got some serious belly laughs from everyone. That was very funny. Um, so, headline, TV executive, Netflix exaggerates viewership. So, John Landgraf. What? <laughs> who would have thought? What? Who would have ever fucking thought? Uh, John Landgraf, the FX Network's chief executive, who has uh, frequently pointed out um, many different things across the TV landscape. He's an extremely accomplished uh, TV executive. Yeah, thanks for getting Legion made and Fargo. Seriously, though, uh, FX, pretty great network if we're talking about uh, cable networks. And, um, th- I mean, the guy has clearly seen a lot. He's uh, been a part of a lot. And essentially, he is saying that Netflix is greatly exaggerating the numbers, uh, specifically in the article it mentions that Netflix's claim that 40 million households globally watch the series You is suspect. Uh, this is what Landgraf is saying, contending that the U.S. figure would only be about 8 million viewers if industry's average viewership standard was applied. Okay, but what what does that mean? So 
the viewership standard, right? Because I think that means that they count one household. Do they count the number of TVs per household? Because most people in the upper middle class or middle class or whatever, most of the people that probably have a Netflix subscription, right, and, are going to have multiple TVs in their house. Right. Do they, they count it per household or per TV? And I guess that's where things – it gets a little bit into the weeds here and sure. something that people are not so sure about. Uh, Netflix is notorious for not releasing its streaming numbers. And even when they do release numbers, I would say, as someone that watches a lot of Netflix, generally yeah. enjoys a lot of Netflix content, I also find it a little bit suspect. 40 million people? That's so many I watching know. this series. I find it a little hard to believe, and unfortunately, unlike uh, traditional cable or uh, antenna TV, you know we know all know about Nielsen and Nielsen ratings, and that's how they gather a lot of um, data on who's watching what. And numbers like forty million—that's like it's like one in eight people are watching this show. That's like the most watched television show of all time. I don't know if that's probably getting close to, if not beating things like the series uh, finale of like cheers and mash these legendary events in TV history during the 20th century that like literally when, when mash ended, like everybody in the in United the, States watched, watched it, it right live. Right. Um, and we're in a landscape where that is that doesn't happen anymore. And while you know Netflix does have a lot of successes, uh, I will say, Mister Landgraf Landgraf uh, notes Stranger Things as being one of those big successes. Sure, um, there doesn't. I, I just can't believe that forty million people would all watch that one show. Granted, you has been getting a lot of traction. It has. Um, it has kind of captured a bit of the zeitgeist, but the the truth of that is really up to Netflix's interpretation. Uh, they generally define, and this is according to the article in the Sun Times, they generally define a view as uh, or a viewer as someone who has watched at least. A, a quote-unquote significant portion of the show. Uh, Landgraf said, by creating the creating a myth that they have used data to find the magic bullet of guaranteed commercial success that has eluded everyone else since the creation of television, they have given the impression that the vast majority of shows on their platform are working and that they have or will soon have many more hits than anyone else. So, I mean, this I this is perhaps a false uh, equivalency here, but this is kind of just bringing to mind the the case with like Movie Pass a little bit because it's yeah. like okay, so this thing this platform is so extremely successful. I mean, they released the news a couple of months ago or weeks ago that they're going to be spending a billion dollars on production budgets. For and this is Netflix for Netflix, yeah, yeah, for seven the creation of seven hundred original shows and movies. Jesus Christ! And so th th they're going to be doing that. I mean, sure. that's that's a number that they have released, but. And they're they're also increasing their subscription costs uh, soon, if not if they haven't already. Yeah, it's it's been a slow uptick, which is just kind of that's the reality of the situation. I mean, and the lack of transparency, right? That's the thing that that's what got MoviePass, and now MoviePass is fucked. Yeah. So what what is the what is the, this saying about Netflix? You know, like what do, could this possibly mean for its future? I mean, it seems to be right by all everything that we know, right? It seems to be going along just fine. Yeah, I mean, they're they're having huge success this year with streaming numbers and also the fact that they've just uh they have uh Roma nominated for best picture. Yeah. 
and uh, best director and also best foreign film and best cinematography as well. I think so. Yeah, yeah it's got eleven. It's so got it's got a ton of just throw a dart at a board and we have you're a gonna hit a ma- you're gonna it. hit a major category uh, for Netflix. But it is something that we have to ask ourselves. Is Netflix inflating their own numbers in order to create hype when um, they know they're going to be spending a ton of money on original content? Right. I don't know. And and frankly, I have to give it up to uh, Mr. Landgraf for being willing to challenge them. Now, granted, he has a vested economic interest in making Netflix seem uh, suspect or sure. uh, possibly call into question its financial solvency. But, I mean, he is the CEO of fx networks um he is he's putting out a bunch of tv shows himself a lot of them risky i mean and honestly a lot of them being shows that oh i could have seen netflix making the fargo television series right i could have seen them putting out legion yeah but but uh, also i mean these are movies like you said they're movies that they're sorry shows that are taking risks and i mean how much of that are we really seeing coming from netflix you know i mean i appreciate that he's calling kind of calling out at the very least the arrogance of netflix yeah saying that oh yeah sabrina is a huge success and i'm like well it's not a particular i mean it's it's a good show i like it and there's a lot of netflix originals that i enjoy such as i recently watched russian doll i'm really glad that got made um i've heard good things so yeah it's fantastic watch very quick but to you know if they came out tomorrow and said oh yeah russian doll's been watched 40 million times i'd be like okay come on bullshit (laughs) i'm gonna call i'm gonna call bullshit on that and let's remember netflix is not an entity that we need to protect with uh, our emotional responses or anything like be honest be honest i really them not releasing the numbers is it's just suspect i it's like uh a certain chief of the country who won't release his tax returns Hmm. it's suspect a certain chief a certain person that shall remain nameless no donald trump fuck you (laughs) there you go that's a that's uh just a little tip of the cap to rendezvous in chicago yeah Love it. Love it. Love it. Um, another story here. Woody Allen suing Amazon for $68 million over a broken contract. Now, mm. <sighs> we're really getting into the white privilege weeds here, aren't we? Yes. Um, so this, from what I've read about this, this was a four-picture deal that he had with with Amazon, right? Yes. And um, it was broken because Woody Allen is pretty much a monster? Yeah. Right? Um, he's, he's calling the allegations that led to the broken contract... Um, He's he's calling them, like, baseless, and as he said, they're 25-year-old allegations that are baseless. I mean, I don't know how you can call them baseless. Uh, right. I mean... It, this has been kind Multiple of an open people thing. have come forward absolutely including one of your family members so. yes um so I'm, I'm curious to see how this case plays out right um and i i mean he's going up against a massive company that has probably amazing lawyers I'm not saying that he doesn't have an amazing amazon lawyers yeah, yeah um, amazon amazing lawyers <laughs> now and i'm not saying that mr allen does not also have uh, probably a substantial team of team of lawyers but um i i, I guess it doesn't really help to comment on wh- how i think it's going to go i I'm, think i think that it could probably be settled out of court 
I've got a. They'll pay him off. What does it cost them to pay him off if it means that they get to keep some sort of like I don't know moral integrity, right? And and I know that Jeff Bezos is a pretty frequent listener to this show. He missed the last couple <laughs> because he's been busy. But I actually want to just directly pitch to Jeff Bezos my idea for a fix for this for this whole four picture fiasco. And here's here's my idea. It's going to be a televised boxing match, four part boxing match between Bezos Bezos v Allen, and at the very end. Bezos goes down in the end of the fourth film. <laughs> so then Woody Allen finally gets his retribution by getting to beat the shit out of somebody that's richer than him. And he still gets his four picture deal so that uh, then they don't have to pay him. And then they purposely hide it from the timeline of everybody watching Amazon Prime so no one actually sees it. It's like, oh, sorry, the people weren't subscribing and following oh, the, yeah, the not thing. A chance, so, man. Sorry, so you don't get dude. to see Bezos. So that's my idea for a fix. And I think that not only does it make a hell of a lot of sense to do it that way, but yeah. I just think it would be a lot of fun. Absolutely. All right, real quick. <laughs> Real quick, um, you, we're not superhero people. Real, I mean, I like superhero movies. I watch. Well, speak for yourself, Tom. I consider myself a superhero. You are, yeah, a shitty one. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Boom. Hey, <laughs> shitty. Calling me out. <laughs> All right. Uh, last story here, and this is kind of in a similar vein to Woody Allen. Um, James Gunn fired from directing guardians of the galaxy three because Which, of tweets that he sent uh about 10 10 11 years ago yeah like somewhere 2009 or something like that yeah somewhere in that range uh fired off the project let go from disney however uh mtv news in a interview with uh chris pratt the star one of the stars of the guardians of the galaxy franchise said that disney is still planning on using james gunn's script for guardians three right and I, i'm like i'm like pissed off about that that's stupid right well, that, that I, doesn't make sense to me. I have heard talk ear to the ground that there has been a new director, a very underground director that's very exciting, and his name is Jim Bullet, who is going serious? to be who is going to be directing this film. Is that is that true? Jim Bullet. It's not going to be James Gunn. It will be Jim <sighs> Bullet. I believe. I, I believe he was he was parents were divorced, so it might be Bullet Cartridge. I can't remember or, or partridge maybe I don't know but this is just what I'm hearing these are the these are the facts of the streets Are you serious right now <laughs> Is it what kind of bit is this This is a uh, absolutely I don't know what you're talking about this isn't a bit This is real life Tom We don't have time to okay. play around Okay. Well, I I want to be serious about this because I find it a little bit hypocritical that they would fire James Gunn uh, because of his tweet. So he won't direct it, but he's still like super attached and he's going to make money off. Well, he has to make money off it. He wrote it. I heard a bunch of the Guardians of the Galaxy threatened to quit if they didn't use the James Gunn script, though. So maybe it was just a way of protecting their their ass and their investment. That's stupid if you ask me. With a company like Disney, they're going to do that, though right i mean they're gonna but it's just it's just such a defanged response like i i i don't know if i necessarily agree with them letting james gunn go but they did that's the facts yeah they did they let him go because they felt like that he did not represent the image they wanted to portray so by that logic you can't just pick and choose or I guess I mean but that's maybe, thing, I, maybe I'm being that's, maybe I'm lacking nuance. Here's what I here's my my thing is you for most people it's you can't have your cake and eat it too unless you're a mega <laughs> maniac like Disney in which case you absolutely can have your cake and eat it too. I know you I'm just, just have frustrated to be rich. About it. You just have to be rich and uh, have a franchise that people are so rabid for that they're not going to care. And really, um, I don't know. It doesn't really make me feel better because I I watch those Guardians movies. I think they represent some of the 
best of that franchise. Yeah. Which if I, I would say like the ceiling of good for that is for the Marvel for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Universe is probably about is like Guardians of the Galaxy, Black Panther, and like one of the Thor. a couple of the Captain America movies. I'm gonna go Thor Ragnarok as well. Yeah, that there's was, there is a a, there's there's a certain amount of quality, but it's not re- particularly high. Sure. W- despite Black Panther being really good and nominated for Best Picture. True. Um you that's know, a whole other thing. So I just I just find it kind of silly it that is. they're that they're just gonna pick and choose. But as you said, um you you can't have your cake and eat it too unless you're unless you're Disney Disney <laughs> do whatever the hell you want. Yep. All right. Uh coming up now we're gonna be talking with a fantastic guest. Uh so excited. It is Alexander uh, pardon me. Is Alexandra Halkin, uh, founding director of the America's Media Initiative, talking a little bit about the Cuban Visions screening series. Uh, very excited for it. Uh, coming to you next. Stick around here on NoCo Cinema on WGM Plus. Welcome back, everybody. Listening to NoCo Cinema here on WGM Plus, your guide to cinema here in the city of Chicago. Tom Hush. Connor Cornelius. Uh, and we've got a great interview for you today. Um, we're very lucky to be welcoming uh, a guest that is telling us all about an awesome screening series. Uh, it is a collaboration between the America's Media Initiative, the Athenaeum Theater, and, of course, our friends over at Full Spectrum Features. Um, Shout out to uh, all of the fine folks over there. Yeah, and I believe they're they're even their offices are in the Athenaeum. I believe. Yes, yeah, they are. So, uh, really great space to be in the Athenaeum, beautiful theater. Um, and I think you can. I think it was uh, our good friend Raul Benitez. Raul Benitez uh, got us to meet you. We've been trying to set up some time to to sit down with you. Uh, and I'm saying you, and by you, I of course am meaning the guest that we have on today, Alexandra Halkin. Uh, she is the founding director of the America's Media Initiative, and the name of the series is Cuban Visions. And uh, basically, it's a screening series that's going to be taking on a lot of different topics, uh, and it goes for a pretty long time. I've got dates. I mean, we're going March, May, all the way through November, uh, and we're talk- they're going to be talking about different things such as emerging women filmmakers, revolutionary aspirations, uh, and th- this one I'm really interested in, the personal is political so plenty of great conversations plenty of great film to be watching uh alexandra thank you so much for coming on the show thank you for having me so i guess we'll just start at the beginning here tell us a little bit about cuban visions well cuban visions is a year-long film series that basically came out of my organization america's media initiative that's been working with independent cuban filmmakers that live in Cuba uh, since 2011. Um, And I primarily work with emerging filmmakers, so young filmmakers, and I've really tried to incorporate their, it's mostly their work Mm -hmm. um, into this series. Um, But it's some of the work I actually distribute. I have a distribution collaboration with Icarus Films in New York City. Um, and some of the films are have no distribution and are rarely seen in the United States, if seen at all. So the idea of the series for me, I've done a lot of 
one-off film festivals. I actually uh, curated a pro- co-curated a program at the Museum of Modern Art in 2013. It was a series of documentary short films. Um, but that was only for a couple days. And, and for me, I'm really interested in building an audience over time and also using film as a starting point for discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the filmmakers will be present, but mostly they won't be present because really the idea is to talk about the themes of the films. They're primarily documentary films mm-hmm. dealing with contemporary issues in S- Cuba. So for the people in the U.S., what's the what are we missing? What opportunities are we missing by not knowing kind of emergent filmmakers in other countries, particularly in the in the countries that you're that you're helping bring transparency to? Well. You know, for me, um, with Cuba in particular, is the young filmmakers are really the people that are telling the story of contemporary Cuba. Um, Cuban television is controlled um, by the Communist Party and tends to be very conservative. Um, It is opening up more. It has been opening up more, but still there's a lot of stories that just don't make it onto Cuban television or into the Cuban, into the government-controlled press. And so these are films that talk about issues that affect young people, but affect Cuban society in general. Mm-hmm. Well, and the political history of not just Cuba, but Cuba and the United States is fraught with many difficulties, uh, plenty of tension. And I, I was curious as to how these Cuban filmmakers feel you know they're in a communist controlled uh situation um when they're making these films what are some of the difficulties of not just getting the film seen but getting the films made that we might not even think about well a lot of the issues that these young filmmakers face are the same issues that young filmmakers in the united states face right getting Mm -hmm. funding getting access to equipment um, and getting distribution um, you know, distribution in the United States is becoming more and more tightly controlled by fewer and f- I'm especially I'm talking about documentaries in particular, mm-hmm. sure. um, fewer and fewer outlets. Um, and so there's a lot of very similar problems that happen in Cuba. Um, there is, you know, self-censorship that happens in Cuba as well as in the United States, but in Cuba because um, it's, you know, getting permissions to shoot in different locations can be problematic. There's a lot of bureaucracy. Um, And because the government controls all the public screening spaces like movie theaters and small cinemas and television, that a lot of times there is no public venue to screen the work. So that, that, I think, is a major difference um, in Cuba. But there, I would say that there's more similarities with emerging filmmakers in both countries than differences in terms of just making something happen and Absolutely. getting it made. I, I guess another problem in Cuba, and this goes directly to the U.S.-imposed embargo that now is about 60 years old, um, getting equipment, you know, buying current state-of-the-art video equipment, you just can't do it in Cuba. It's not available in Cuba. And basically because the U.S. embargo controls things that are available to the Cuban public and manufacturers that make things from the United States. I mean, it's a very, very complicated situation, the U.S. embargo, but has definitely affected 
um, the ability to get equipment and also funding, frankly, because um, funding, there's a, funders in the United States are very reticent to give funding in Cuba because the banking um, relationship between Cuba and the United right. States kind of doesn't really exist. Absolutely. And certainly um, the Trump administration has made things more and more difficult. Which is unfortunate because under the Obama administration, there was a, a moment, however brief, where we really felt that Cuba was going to be coming back into the fold as a country that we could do business with, a country where people could have a little bit more free flow of not not just immigration, but ideas. And uh, I, I, that's the unfortunate part about filmmaking is that as much as it is an art, it is also a business. You have to pay for things. I don't know if you would know the answer to this, but when it comes to these filmmakers and equipment, um, how much of the equipment they're dealing with is like older, less, um, you know, it's very easy to get high end digital cameras in the United States rent through rental or just purchase. But would you happen to know if they're shooting on more outdated equipment, perhaps like stuck with film or what's what's no. they shooting on? No, they, they shoot on state of the art equipment it's just that they have to get it outside of cuba and bring it into cuba okay yeah no they i mean the thing about cuban filmmaking is that it these are highly trained technicians the first ministry after the revolution actually was the film ministry to be created so film has always played a really important role in cuban culture um one thing that has always amazed me in cuba is the film literacy of people, I mean, I've done screenings in the countryside where I've had conversations about like editing continuity. You know <laughs> yeah. what I'm saying? Like that's like I have never had a conversation yeah. about that in a general public screening in the United States. Where do you? So you mentioned that film is obviously an important part of the Cuban experience. Um, why? Why do you think that they latch onto it so much more as a uh, form of expression or? perhaps escape in a way a way of uh dealing with the political and social realities of cuba versus in the united states where someone could just kind of take these things for granted well film has always been kind of an outlet for for criticism um of the re of of the revolution um it's been an outlet there's been there's you know if you look at films that were especially i'm talking about fiction films but also documentaries that were produced in the 60s and the 70s yes they have served as kind of an outlet for critique of for example the cuban bureaucracy right um how things get done or don't get done um through drama there's amazing comedies, and one of my all-time favorite films is Death of a Bureaucrat, right, <laughs> about this guy they're trying to bury. Um, so there's like um, – there – it has – I think because of that role um, as kind of a cultural intermediary, I guess you could say, um, it has been recognized. And also the other thing that, that is also amazing when you go, for example, to Havana, if you get a chance to go to any of their cinemas, they're enormous, more like the movie palaces of old, like where it's one big room with like 300 plus seats or like, even, even like, bigger. Like thousands. Thousand oh, seats. wow. Really? Yeah. Beautiful. 
Like huge, huge. So I want to ask a little bit more about what the cinema experience is in, in Cuba, but something that you said a little bit ago about how the there's a little bit of like technological uh, barriers that make it difficult to use state-of-the-art equipment and stuff. And I think well, that cinema, uh, well, they, they go outside of the, you know, they go outside of the country to get it and they bring it back in, as you, as you said. But I think that it's really interesting, and we talk about it all the time here, is how when y- you necessity is the mother of invention right and i'm really curious to hear how that like spirit the scrappiness that it must require in order to actually make cinema in order to make a movie about cuba it has to become an international experience you have to leave the country to go get the equipment and bring it back in order to capture the true story so could you tell us a little bit more about the cinema culture in cuba and 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 what it's like and maybe how it differs to to the united states um, there, there's well, there's a very famous film school in Cuba. It's called the International Film and Television School. Um, it was created in the late '80s by Colombian author um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez yeah, and yes. um, fantastic and some other film folks, um, both inside and outside of Cuba. And that film school has produced, and that's an international film school, right? It's not just Cuban students, has produced a number of important filmmakers over the decades. So, um, and that, that school has state-of-the-art equipment. Um, there's a national film school, um, which I don't, I've never been to the film department, the film or communications department to see the actual equipment that they're working with, but it's kind of like in other countries that, other developing countries that over the last 20 years, as equipment's gotten smaller, better, cheaper, you know, you don't need to go out and get like a giant Betacam camera with you know, <laughs> all that, that heaviness and tape and all that stuff. It, I think that, that because of the changes in technology, it has really assisted Cuban filmmakers in making, you know, if we're talking about tech technical quality the same level of technical quality that you can produce in the United States but that's not to say all the filmmakers in Cuba have access to this kind of equipment and I've seen films produced that really good films produced for like $500 you know one thing that I always say in the United States where you know you go to these film schools and they have every single piece of equipment that you could ever imagine and they're complaining about something. You know? Right. <laughs> and I'm just like... You don't see that. Yeah, you don't, you know, it, that's such a privilege. Right. It's such a privilege. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that Cuba is really taking advantage of every piece of tech, every piece of film schooling that they can get, and uh, establishing themselves as a cinema powerhouse over, you know, over its entire lifetime post-revolution um, with these institutes that are just like, yes, film is important, film is expression, film is a way forward for us to capture the experience. And I want to get into a little bit about the procurement of these films uh, because of embargo and politics. Can you tell us a little bit about getting the films and then bringing them to the States? Can I just tell you one really illustrative story of, of technology and creativity? Please. Um, there's an animator that I know that um, lives in Santa Clara, which um, is a town uh, in, a, in, in, a, in a central province in Cuba, who was trained as an architect. 
and he saw the animation Toy Story mm-hmm. 1 um, and got really interested in animation. And he trained himself in 3D animation on pirated software, obviously, because you How can't, else could you do yeah. it? You, no other way to do it. Um, he built his own computers. He has now written software for 3D animation. He actually produced the first 3D animation in Cuba on his home-built computer with his software that he wrote. Um, And this is somebody who lives out in the provinces. Right. Um, And he's done amazing work. And he put together this animation collective. I don't know how much of the collective is still together, Mm -hmm. but they work together producing a number of short animations that won a number of awards um, in Cuba and I think also outside of Cuba. So I think that's really a good illustration of... You know, where there's a will, there's a way, and, uh, you know, you make stuff happen. And these are the kinds of people that we're going to be able to see more and learn more about through the Cuban Visions documentary series. I mean, where somebody, a story where somebody sees Toy Story and then becomes a coder and an animator and a filmmaker. And and a computer engineer. And an architect. And and that's unbelievable. So could we talk a little bit more about some of the subjects that we can expect to see at these at these at the series? Yeah, the on March 1st uh we will have LGBTQ politics and gay marriage as the subject which you know, I don't know a lot about the that community in Cuba. Yeah. Um what it, what is it like and what kind of stories might we see? Well, the the upcoming uh, screening on March 1st um, is we're going to see the films of Afro-Cuban queer filmmaker Damien Sainz. It's going to be four short documentaries. He's actually a graduate of the International Film School that I mentioned earlier. Um, and his last, the last film that we're going to show is called Betaria, which focuses on um, an abandoned fortress, which is right outside of Havana, where um, that is turned into a gay cruising um, spot. Um, and it's it's a really beautiful film. It's won a number of awards, um, but it really kind of gets to the heart of. Um, a certain kind of exclusion in the gay community when you don't have access to hard currency um, and you're forced to kind of go to these clandestine areas. And I say not don't have access to hard currency because what's happened in Havana in particular is there's been a number of gay bars that have opened up, but you have to pay to enter. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. You, you know, the drinks cost money. And if you don't have access to dollars or hard currency, you can't enter these places. And so they're basically for Cubans who have, have money. more money right. or tourists. It's, you yeah. know. Um, so the people that in this film that go to this fortress are people that have been excluded from this kind of more elite gay culture. And the situations that they face are really very complicated with the police and with petty crime and that kind of a thing. So Damian will be there to talk about his films and his filmmaking process. Um, I've also been working with Damian um, on a queer cine club that premiered last year. They've had about seven screenings, and they're showing queer films from all over the world. I've gone to a couple of the screenings. Okay. Super interesting discussions, which I think we'll probably touch on um, in the discussion after right. Damien's films. And also with us is going to be Norge Espinosa, who is an LGBTQ activist, a playwright, scholar, um, really well-respected um, expert 
on this issue. So I think it's going to be a super interesting discussion with both Damian and and the other thing that's interesting about it, it's two different generations, right? Oh, two okay. different yeah, experiences. Yeah. Damian is black. Um, Norhe is white, so it should be really interesting. And what an opportunity to learn more about, uh, you know, parts of a culture that are are important to both Tom and I, but something that we are completely removed from, obviously. And and as we've mentioned before, we don't have really the access to learn about it. So we're so happy that you have the initiative to you know bring this to us. Yeah, so we. Important. I think a lot of the uh, a lot of what we hope for in filmmaking a lot i think what a lot of uh, people who love filmmaking seek is this sense of empathy and this sense of being able to watch and experience um the the lives of others and maybe you could call it voyeuristic i like to think of it as educational it's yeah. a way for me to step into damian shoes and his, um, you know the people around him the people of cuba in this community and get a sense of what they're dealing with and expand our own notions of um, Cuban identity and even maybe transplant some of those ideas to the U.S., uh, especially because we have such a population of Cuban immigrants, people coming here and bringing those ideas with them. I was curious about your thoughts as to film as a revolutionary product i think sometimes in the united states when our idea of film especially when we're younger is hollywood right and this sort of idea of film and we have to be later introduced to film as a more revolutionary act um what in your estimation why is film so good for revolution whether it's the cuban revolution with their with their particular set of ideas and setting up like we need this film institute to propagate certain ideas about the regime or filmmakers like Damian who use it as a way to explore uh, their own revolution? Um, I, from my own personal experience, I see film as a key tool in self-representation, especially for populations that have been underrepresented by mass media, cult, you know, the general culture, whatever. Um, and I think you know, what's happening in Cuba with these emerging filmmakers is exactly that. It's they're getting the camera, they're telling their stories, the stories that they don't see represented in the Cuban media. Um, I've seen it. I I worked um, in Mexico for years with indigenous media, um, where we built media centers with the Zapatista communities, indigenous communities in southern Mexico. And essentially, that was the purpose of the project. There's a group of people always being represented by outsiders, and here now they have the tools so they can tell their own story. And I think that is really powerful, and I think it really resonates across audiences. I've seen it. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I love doing film screenings with the general public, because it's amazing how you can cross boundaries that you didn't think you could through film mm -hmm. and have discussions around issues. I mean, what I say about Cuba and the U.S., I think there's many more things in common right, than right. different. We can see ourselves in each other, and that's that seems to be the best way to gain understanding is to sit there and find those similarities. And uh, it's weird to th you know, that it goes to show how ignorant I am to think that, like, oh, wow, Cuban filmmaking must be, like, really you know, super gorilla using film still and all that kind of stuff. No, they have a prestigious film history yeah. and uh, what an exciting opportunity for us to walk into this and experience it and maybe learn to expect more out of 
uh, the American filmmakers and be like, you know what? I don't want to see Avengers exactly. anymore. I want something Dude, that more relatable. <laughs> we are right on the same exact page because that was exactly the next question that I wanted to ask is like, why Why do you think that the, the films that we see that are made by Hispanic filmmakers are so much more keyed into the, like a real issue, whereas I feel like the most popular movies in that are made in the U.S. are, are, are superheroes. I mean, and, the, and this goes back, not necessarily the superhero bit, but this goes back to the beginning I think you have filmmakers like Luis Buñuel making Las Urdes, you know, speaking truth to the these people who have been forgotten by the state. And I think that that happens. That's still happening, obviously, with these films that you're making today. And and I'm not to say that Hispanic filmmakers aren't making films for entertainment purposes. But why is it so much more keyed in in uh, Hispanic filmmaking, the speaking truth to power, whereas I feel like in America, on the whole, the majority of films that get made are are for entertainment purposes. Yeah, I think if we're talking about fiction film in particular, I think one word that really explains it is capitalism Mm -hmm. um, and making money. Um, You know, filmmakers in Cuba don't make films to make money. I mean, it's... It's a rare day <laughs> when a filmmaker in Cuba actually makes money um, on a fiction film, and documentary films never make money. I mean, unless you get a deal with Netflix or Amazon yeah. or something like that. So I think what moves Hollywood um, is is the money factor, and you know, and and the kind of entertainment where you can zone out. Sure, you know, where you really, you know, I mean. I, and I understand it, you know? Right. I mean, every once in a while, you really need to zone out. But sure. I think that there is an overemphasis on um, on that. And I also, I don't know. I mean, there there are some interesting films that have come out recently in the United States that have more topical issues. And But yes, I think the, in Latin America, they're working with much smaller budgets. Um, you know, the distribution is very different unless they get, you know, some kind of a worldwide distribution. You know, they're really dealing with a local population or just in Latin America, just in Span- in the Spanish-speaking world. So I think it's very different. And, you know, in Cuba, it's because the film ministry, because of the financial situation that Cuba is facing right now, it's in a very difficult place. Um, there really isn't money. There isn't money for national cinema. Okay, so mm-hmm. the all of the productions that happen in Cuba are usually co-productions. There's really, unless it's a small documentary, maybe produced by the film minist- the Ministry of Film or Cuban Television. Really, all the feature productions are co-productions. So it's just a very different kind of mindset, sure. I think. Yeah. Um, and also speaking to the population, you know, you're you're talking to a population that, d- in general, doesn't have access to the technology that we have in the United States. I mean, the internet in Cuba is expensive. Um, you know, we don't, it's not connected to the broadband system like it is here in the United States. Um, although they have workarounds, like they have this amazing thing called the paquete. Yeah, is that the USB drive? Or they send around a drive to different people? I feel like I, I've you heard You probably about read about it. Yeah. Um, I actually wrote about it a few years ago, but it's one terabyte every week that they download off the internet that has feature films, documentaries, websites, um, you know, online newspapers, and it circulates throughout the island. And so, and, and 
the distribution is broken up actually by neighborhood, by blocks. I'm, I actually did some research on it, and where I stay in Havana, I talked to the local <laughs> Paquete distributor, and it was fascinating. It is fascinating. And so because they don't have access to broadband internet, they have created a workaround, which is the Paquete, and it changes every week. So, for example, if somebody's in a, in one neighborhood versus another, they could get a completely different set of. It's like it's like street based Netflix. Where uh, is that? Is it my well? The paquete. It's one paquete every week. Okay. that goes throughout the island. Right. Uh-huh. But essentially, because nobody is going to copy one terabyte there, they're just not going to do it. Yeah. So they pick and choose off the weekly drive like what they want do they want the telenovelas from brazil do they want like the hollywood movies that kind of a thing but it changes every week that's unbelievable it's it's cuban ingenuity <laughs> that's when cuban in the, ingenuity. well in the face of having to deal with so much uh state control over media and the the kind of almost human need for media because it represents connection it represents something that they can talk about essentially it's everyday life you can watch uh the telenovela with your friends and you have something to talk about and uh you know it can be very essential to to one's social life um Absolutely. it's amazing that that would just develop the and it, it just brings us back to the story about the architect who became a yeah. world-class animator if it's not there somebody will make it there right? where there's a will there's a way Absolutely. Where there's a will there's a way uh, i just want to remind everybody that there's a huge number of screenings coming up uh a full year uh of course on march 1st you've got uh the lgbtq politics and gay marriage on may 5th economics 101 on july 19th emerging women filmmakers october 18th revolutionary aspirations and november 10th the personal is political this is all part of the cuban visions screening series is a uh, collaboration between the america's media initiative athenaeum theater and of course full spectrum features here in chicago uh alexandra before we let you go where can people find out a little bit more about um the america's media initiative because i want people to do their research and figure out what you guys are doing um, you can go to our website, which is americasmediainitiative.org. Um, that has all the information about the work we've been doing. It also has our DVD catalog with Icarus Films. Um, information about the Cuban Vision series you can find also on our homepage, also on the Full Spectrum Features website, and also, obviously, on the Athenaeum Theater website. All right. Alexandra Halkin, founding director of the America's Media Initiative. Thank you so much for joining us. Incredibly insightful look into Cuban cinema. I'm I'm just thrilled now. I'm just I'm so I was excited I'm, before because I'm like, let's let's get out there. Let's watch more. How often film. does a guest come on talking about the film school that was started by Garcia Marquez? Gabriel yeah. Marquez. It's just no one does it. So no one does it. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you for having me.